You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks again for being here this morning. Thank you to these guys for leading us in worship. I'm so glad that you're here. I want you to know that God loves you. He loves you deeply. I think we don't hear that enough. I want to tell you, and I hope you experience um, the fact that God loves you. He's, he, he's pursuing you. He wants a relationship with you. And the field church loves you. Maybe not as much as God loves you. Just kidding. We love you greatly as well. Of course, God's love is far greater. But he wants to do a special work in you today. And I pray that he does. I pray that he does what only he can do inside of you, inside of your heart, through his spirit. And I know that he will. As we begin, you know, for as long as Christianity has been around, um, there have always been people who have claimed Christianity, and yet even some who have claimed it and failed to understand the true meaning of the gospel. That's been since the beginning of time. Um, since the beginning of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, people have pursued it and even called it their own, and yet maybe have not fully understood the meaning of what the gospel truly is, and if so, once they have, have turned maybe away. We see this picture. That even in Jesus' day, listen, even when Jesus was here on earth with us, there were people who followed Jesus for some time. Do you know that? And yet, because of what a, a misunderstanding of what it would truly mean to follow him, they turned away after some time. Because maybe a misunderstanding, they turned back and they proved not truly to be Jesus' disciples. And that's scary when you see that in the Bible. People following him for some time, all in, and then yet later on out, permanently, not following him. And I'm just going to lead you through this trail that we see this one picture of this truth in John chapter 6, that, that same thing in which I described is just clear in one chapter of the Bible, John chapter 6. You see, we see in the beginning of John chapter 6, you can open there, you can see it, or you can see it up on the screen. This isn't our text for the day, um, but, but I'll help you through it. Um, or you can just watch and, and listen. But in verses 4 through 5 of John chapter 6, look at this. A large crowd was seeking Jesus. It says this, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand and lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd that was coming towards him, there was a crowd coming towards Jesus, a crowd, lots of people coming at him. And then Jesus proceeds to feed them. You guys know the story of the 5,000? Yes, right? Feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds these 5,000 people and he's got some left over. And after he does that, listen, the people respond with a kind of belief with a sort of belief in his uniqueness, even ready to make him king. In verses 14 through 15 of that same chapter, John chapter six, look at what it says. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They're like, man, this is him. This is the Messiah. This is the one. And perceiving that then that they were about to come and take him by force to do what? Look at this, make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Listen, there was a people who saw him, saw his uniqueness, semi-believed, ready to make him king. And there was a belief in that Jesus was different, but they didn't quite understand. They didn't fully understand and trust in him for salvation in the way that would be required to fully throw yourself upon Jesus, trust only in his merit for salvation. You see, Jesus then began to teach them in John chapter six, same chapter, what it truly means for salvation, what it would truly mean to trust in him. So he gets down to verse 51 in John chapter six, and you guys are probably all familiar with some of these words, but this is what he says. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, that, those words aren't like popular. Like you don't read those words and say, man, this is awesome. Jesus, he, he's got an easy way. We're just going to eat his flesh, right? You look at that and you say like, what in the world does that mean? And what it means is that if you don't come to Jesus in a way that depends on him so greatly for salvation, that it would be as if his life is the only way that you have life, right? His work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his finished work, his blood, if you don't feed off of that in such a way that that's your only hope for salvation and eternal life, then you got it wrong. That's the way in which we come to him for salvation. We feed off of him. He's the only sustenance and nutrients to give us eternal life. He describes it this way. His work, his blood, his death, his resurrection, his forgiveness for sins, his salvation. And he makes it clear all the more in verse 53. Look at this. In that same chapter, John chapter 6, and Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of my flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life. Man, like this ain't a popular sermon, Jesus, right? But he's making it clear what it looks like to fully trust in him and not anything else for salvation. And when the crowds come and they're seeking him, the ones who have been seeking him for some time heard this, listen, it becomes real clear that this is not what they wanted to believe in. This wasn't the picture that they had up front. The response in verse 60 of the same chapter, it says, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? See, their hearts were beginning to turn because this is not the type of Jesus or religious leader that they wanted to have. They don't want full trust. They don't want to depend on him fully. They don't want to be all in, seek him, and only trust in his merit whatsoever, nothing else on the table for them to have salvation. This is unique, right? This is too much. This is all-encompassing. This requires everything. This requires fully, holy throwing yourself upon Jesus and being all in for the work of the Savior, and it means not trusting in anything else for salvation. And this was disturbing to the people because they were Jewish people. They had a law. They had, they had merit. They had a regulation. They had a religion that they could trust in. And so these people are also described as disciples, which is even more scary because disciples can just simply mean followers, but it didn't mean that they were true disciples. They had a form of belief, a form of following, a form of a desire to make Jesus king, but they weren't all in. They didn't throw themselves upon the Savior and say, if your blood doesn't cover my sin, I got nothing. That wasn't their heart. And it becomes even more evident, more clear, in verse 66 of the same chapter, that people didn't understand what full trust in the Savior meant to such a degree that they would receive salvation. We see the final response to the, of the crowds, right? Who at one time were ready to make Jesus king. And here's what they say. Verse 66, John 6, same chapter. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They turned back. They had a form of belief. They were religious. They followed him for some time. They were ready to make him king. And yet, it's revealed that they maybe never really were believing. They never really did follow. They never really did make him king of their lives. They were never really ready to fully trust in his merit alone for salvation. Now, the reason I tell you this is because it leads right into our story today. You see, one of the reasons why I think this happens, why people are willing to turn away from trusting in the Savior for salvation and turn back to, just as the Jews were, religion, to get themselves into right standing with God. One of the main reasons that happens, and I think the main reason it happened for the Jews, and undoubtedly the main reason why it happened for the Pharisees, is because we don't really see the reality of our sin. Now, I know you hear this, and it sounds cliche all the time, right? The gravity of sin, but let me really explain this to you. The reason why the people weren't ready to fully trust in Jesus as Savior, the Pharisees especially, was because they didn't see the reality of their sin. 
if they saw the gravity of their sin and the justice of God, he's all loving too, but the justice and holiness of God and that our sin will send us forever apart from God, although scary, and this is not the savior that we want, we don't want that truth. Listen, this is the savior that we need when we see the reality of our sin. We don't decide whether or not we want his teaching or his ways. We have no, we dive onto the, onto the savior for life, for eternal life, because it's our only hope. This is the only way it goes. Listen, when we don't see our need for a savior, we don't throw ourselves upon Jesus. And this is what's happening in this Jewish religious culture. This is what the Pharisees did. They turned from following Jesus because there was no need for them to trust in him. They could trust in their own religion. They didn't understand the gravity, the weight of their sin and their need for a savior. You see, you only trust in religion rather than a savior when you believe that your moral and ceremonial efforts for religion can actually save you. When you see that they can't, you throw yourself upon the savior who is merciful and compassionate, who paid the penalty of your sin, who makes you an all-consuming fire for him inside of your heart. When you realize your inability to to be in right standing with him on your own and that your religious efforts still fall short of his great holiness, you jump at the the sight of, of the Savior and you say, I want him. I need him. His way is superior. And so this is what Jesus is showing these people in the story we're about to read, not to trust in religion or tradition, for salvation. Don't trust in your works. They can't get you anywhere. They fall short of the holiness of God. Only Jesus and his merit by mercy and compassion and what he does on the cross can save your soul. When we understand the weight of our sin and our need for a savior, we jump and run to the savior. And this is what the Pharisees did not do. And this is what Jesus wants us to do today. He wants us to turn from trusting in our religion Turn from trusting in our work-based effort for salvation and turn to trusting fully in Jesus Christ, his merit alone. Have you done that? Have you done that? And have you maybe not done that, but maybe you're exploring that. Let me encourage you. Don't go down the road of trusting your own works for your salvation. Look to Jesus who has come to give you mercy and compassion through dying for your sin. And that's the only way to inherit eternal life. And listen, for you Christians, this is the same thing. Listen, you might say, yeah, I did that already. I trusted that. But you know why Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free, do not return again back to to a yoke of slavery. You know why that's written in context? The slavery in in that passage is turning back to a works-based religion, Judaism rather than staying consistent in trusting in the Savior for salvation. So Christians, you can do this too. You could have trusted in Jesus, but live your whole life like your works earn your right standing with God. Jesus wants to do away with it. Lean into Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Now listen, before we pray and dive in, I say all this not because it's just on my heart today. That's never why I say anything up here. I say it because it's the point of the text today. We always pursue the main point of the text. That's what we do. The main point of the sermon is the main point of the text. Every time. The main point of the text is the main point of the sermon. That's how it's supposed to work. I'm not being original up here every week. I'm simply telling you what it says. That's it, right? Just helping you understand it. There's authorial intent in each passage, and we set out to pursue this authorial intent, right? And here we go. If you say this sounds familiar, Jesus' new way, mercy and compassion, not trusting in works-based religion, but only in him for salvation. This sounds very familiar. It's like two weeks ago, the last time we were in Luke, and I say it's identical. It's exactly the same. Luke sees fit to put two passages, the Sabbath passage we saw last time and the Sabbath passage we see this time, identical main points, identical emphasis, right? Identical authorial intent for us to see these two identical passages. It must be this important that Luke must put these things side by side so that we would get the drift. We would understand the point. We can't trust in our religion for salvation. We can't trust in our merit. We have to trust in the mercy and the grace, the new way the only way of the Savior. This is the identical point as we saw last time. So we're just gonna drive it home again. That's it. 
We're going to deal with the Sabbath again. We're going to drive it home again. But I love it because I think it's going to drive it deeper. And I want us to be people who leave here. Let us be the people who walk around Mandeville, the North Shore, and say, those people, man, they fully trust in Jesus. They fully trust in the merit, the mercy, the compassion of the Savior who died for sinners rather than their own works and efforts. Let's let that be said about us. Jesus is gonna accomplish that today. I pray that if you've never trusted in him, that today you would, and that if you're a Christian who's turned back to trusting in your own works for your right standing before God, that you would turn back and lean into the Savior once again. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And God, we need your word. It's our only hope. We need your word to show us today what we need it to show us every day. Nothing's old news. We need to hear it every day because our hearts are prone to wander. I pray that you'd call us back into a trusting fully of the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. God, that we would see the reality of our sin and that we are separated from you because of it, but yet you paid the penalty. That we wouldn't try to trust in our religion. We know it wouldn't get us anywhere, but we would wholly throw ourselves upon you, Jesus, leaning into and trusting only your merit for salvation, your blood, your work, your perfect life, and we would jump for joy because of the truth and the reality of it. God, save people in this room who would turn and trust in you for the first time, and God, turn Christians back towards a trusting in you, Jesus, rather than in themselves. God, we don't wanna be like the Pharisees. We don't wanna turn away from you, Jesus, and be satisfied with trusting in our own traditions, thinking that they're gonna make us right before you. We wanna be Christians who turn away from works-based self-righteousness and only trust in you, Jesus. God, let this not be old news. We wanna be gospel-centered people. So we need to keep hearing this stuff. Help us, God, in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter six. Luke chapter six, starting in verse six. 6 through 11 is where we're at um, in this. And, uh, and so we're going to get there and we're going to read this. Let me just for a second familiarize you with how we got here, okay? I got to give you some um, breadcrumbs, okay? Now listen, I'm just warning you, like this is a lot. I can't help it. God wrote it, okay? Like I can't help but this, this just being complicated, okay? I just got to explain to you what's here. So bear with me, but you got to pay attention because you got to see the progression of how we got here. I know it, it might be uh, difficult to understand, but just listen real close because the progression is going to make this thing come alive. Before we we read. Listen, here's the breadcrumbs. Remember back in chapter five, Jesus started his public ministry, okay? He's about 30 years old. He, he was, his ministry will last three years. At 33, he'll die. He's revealing in his ministry the main thing, who he is as the son of God. That's his main ministry. So people say, ah, that's the son of God. He's dying for sin. He really is God. I'm trusting in his blood and what he's done, and so I can be saved. That's his main ministry. That's it, right? And so in revealing that he is the son of God, he is revealing divine characteristics about himself. He's showing you, I am the son of God. Check out these divine characteristics. Ready? Like I can tell things what to do. I can heal people, right? I can do whatever I want. And so you're like, wow, he really is God. And so in verse 24 of chapter five, he reveals one of these main divine characteristics. What are these characteristics or what is this characteristic? The characteristic is the main characteristic that we need to understand, that he has the authority to forgive sin. That's the main ministry of what Jesus is going to do. Luke 5, 24. Check it out. Ready? That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive what? Sins. That's what he's showing back in chapter 5, verse 24. This is the progression, the breadcrumbs, right? So now listen, the common question, the, the most appropriate question that you would ask after he says that is, okay, if you have the authority to forgive sins, tell me, whose sins are you going to forgive, Jesus? And he answers that question, so we know it's the appropriate question, because the very next section, verses 31 through 32, he tells us, he says, those who are well need no, have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what's the answer? Those who know they are sinners. 
There's no one righteous. The Bible tells us that. So it's not really that he's not calling the righteous because they're already good. He's not calling those who think they're righteous and have no need for him. He's calling sinners who say, I know I need a savior. That's who he's come to forgive. Now the Jews, listen, to the Jews, this was very different. Why? Because they had a law. And they believed that if they trusted in their law, lived by their law, they would be in right standing with God. But see, here's the deal. True Jewish people, they were pretty discouraged. Why were they discouraged? Because they knew they couldn't keep the law. So here they are trying to keep it. And on the other side, they're saying, we keep failing. And we've been failing for thousands of years. We need something to save us, someone to save us. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they weren't discouraged. Why? They thought they could keep the law. We don't need a savior. So if Jesus comes in and tells us of this new way, listen, we don't need this new way. We got a way. We're gonna keep the law and we're gonna, we're gonna earn it on our own. So listen, they thought that they could keep it as we discussed last time. And this is the part of the religious. You only trust in your religion when you believe that you can, your moral and ceremonial laws and, and efforts can earn your salvation. But those who are aware of their sins are those who Jesus has come to save. And so listen, this is what he's telling everybody. And what we see in verse 37 through 38 of chapter 5 is that Jesus says, you indeed have perceived right. This is a new way. Because look at what he says. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, new wine will burst the skins and will be split and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. What he's saying is don't try to fit this new way of mercy, compassion through me on the cross, my blood dying for you into your old way of ceremonial law, trying to earn your way. The two are incompatible. You can't trust in me and trust in your own works at the same time. It's one or the other. You're either all in trusting in my merit or you're trusting in your own works. He's saying, you gotta choose. He's showing them the new way. This is grace through faith, the mercy of God in sending his son. That's the only way to be saved. Jesus is blowing their mind. This is a new way. This is the Messiah, he's come. Right, he's fulfilling it. But the Pharisees, they weren't having any of this, right? What we saw last time is they weren't having any of this. Why? Because they thought that their ceremonial laws could keep them and be right standing before God. And so Jesus comes to obliterate this, right? And so while Jesus comes to obliterate this, he uses one thing very specifically. These are the breadcrumbs leading up to where we are today. He uses one thing very, very specifically. He's gonna use more, but he starts out with using their Sabbath, to begin to undermine their trust in their own religion. Why does he use the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath was pinnacle for the tradition, the law, for the Jewish people to keep in order to earn a right standing with God. The Sabbath is like the rule of all rules. You keep the Sabbath. And if you can keep it perfectly in every way, then, you, then you've earned it. You, you've earned a step in earning your way before a, a holy and righteous God. You can be in right standing with him. Listen, so they added even more rules. This is how confident they were that they were in right standing before God. They said, listen, we can keep the Sabbath, no problem. Let's add more rules to this whole thing, right? Like, we'll just say we can eat this or we can't eat that. You can go there. You can't do this. Like, we can keep all those things. That's how prideful they were. They didn't need a savior. They could do it on their own. They could trust in their religion. And so what we see last time in John chapter six is that Jesus goes to undermine this. Remember in Exodus 20, look at this on the screen. There's only one main command for the Sabbath and it's out throughout all the scriptures, only one thing. What is it? Look at this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God and on it you shall do what? That's the only command. And yet they keep adding to it in order to earn their right standing with God. And so listen, Jesus comes. He undermines it. He gives an example of David. You remember this from a couple weeks ago? Now we're getting close, okay? And he gives an example of David who needed food. And the ceremonial law was done away with in order to provide for the human need. And Jesus is, this is real, this is true, but this, Jesus is using this as a metaphor also. That the human need for saving, because humans have fallen short of the glory of God and have no way of keeping the law, that human need has superseded, taken precedence over the ceremonial law 
And so God now has come to do good and save sinners rather than just abide by the ceremonial law. He's doing away with it. This is something new. And this is how we get to the place we're at today. Jesus is just gonna do it again. Jesus is just gonna do it again. Now listen, let me tell you, this is so important for us. If it seems irrelevant in some ways because it's such an old story, old regulations, I truly believe that if we would be a people who trust in the merit of Jesus for our salvation, rather than our works, God would use us in mighty ways to change the world, and we'd live in closer fellowship with him on a daily basis. And Plus, many of us would be saved who aren't. So let's read this today once again, okay? Now that we understand the context, I want us to read this actually for the first time, and I want us to walk through it. Jesus is gonna do once again what he has been doing, undermining the law, doing away with the ceremonial law, and getting us to a place where we trust only in Jesus for salvation and for the sanctification for the rest of our lives. That's all he wants to do today. Let's read. Verse six. (coughs) Excuse me. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that he might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, or to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus is showing us once again his way, goodness, mercy, compassion, has taken precedence over the ceremonial law, he's the only one to be trusted in for salvation. Oh, well, hope that we leave here today only trusting in Jesus. What do we see? Number one, we're gonna walk through it. Bible's open, time to fall in love with the text. Keep your eyes on it. Number one, the Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus. Number one, what we see in the passage is that the Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus. Now, this is gonna expose the main point within these points. The Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus. So verse six, check this out. It says, on another Sabbath, follow along with me. As we discussed, the previous section had the same main point, right? And we see in verse one that the event took place on the, what? Sabbath. So here in verse six, we see that this was another Sabbath, right? So we don't know how long it's been. We don't know what took place between the two, right? But Luke likely groups these things together because he's driving home the point that we saw last time and what Jesus is doing. He wants us to get it. In any case, it's on the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue and what was he doing? He was teaching. And this was, listen, Jesus's main ministry was teaching. It was not social causes. It was not accumulating large crowds. It was not having lots of ministries. It was not doing a lot of activity. It was to teach. Jesus was a preacher in many senses because, listen, he knew the the main thing that changes people. What changes people? Truth, the word of God, the scriptures. So that was his main task. And how did he do it? Listen, if you wonder, like, why do we do what we do? Like, we're just walking through the scriptures. Um, It's because that's what Jesus did. That's what the changes people. That's what the word of God does. Jesus literally opened up the Bible and he read it to people. And he explained to them what it meant meant and, and how it pointed to him. Look at this, Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, so he did this often, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and he read the scroll from Isaiah. The word of God changes people, so Jesus is teaching, and he showed how everything fulfilled was fulfilled in him, how everything was meant to point back to him, even the law. And so now this is key. Listen, as Jesus is teaching them, he's showing them how the ceremonial law was just meant to point back to him, wasn't meant to be trusted in for salvation. Tradition is meant to facilitate, to help, not meant to be trusted in for merit, for salvation like the Pharisees were doing. Now, you gotta understand this. Listen, when I say law, you gotta understand the difference. There's ceremonial law and there's moral law, okay? There's two things, ceremonial law and moral law. We gotta understand this in order to understand this passage. Moral law, Jesus came to uphold, right, and to fulfill. 
Jesus came to uphold and fulfill moral law. He lived a perfect what? Life. He came to fulfill it. He lived the perfect like life for us. Because moral law is on our hearts, written on our hearts of every human being. And moral law is to be kept perfectly in order to be holy like God. But as we've talked about, we can't. Moral law is essentially everything good and nothing evil, right? That's who God is. And we can't be that. We can't be morally perfect. So that's why Jesus needs to come. But listen, ceremonial law, on the other hand, was what Jesus came to obliterate. This is what the Jews were trusting in for their salvation. Jesus is Lord over the ceremonial law. He's Lord over all things. But listen, this ceremonial law doesn't save. This is the tradition we're discussing. Listen, ceremonial law, listen close, ready? Ceremonial law was meant to facilitate moral law. Ceremonial law was meant to facilitate moral law. They couldn't keep the moral law. They needed help. Regulations and rules were set up by God, ceremonial laws, in order to help facilitate the people following the moral law, and in that case, living for God. And that's why traditions are just set up in general. Listen, the reason why religious traditions are set up in general is really just to facilitate us living for God, right? But they're not to be trusted in for salvation. That doesn't make any sense. But yet we trust them, we begin to trust in our works and we begin to trust in tradition and religion, ceremonies, in order to facilitate what we need to be doing, which is trusting in Christ. We trust in them as savior and this is what they were doing. Moral law was to be kept perfectly but they couldn't due to their sinfulness so ceremonial law was set up to facilitate it. And so Jesus is coming to obliterate their trust in ceremonial law. His way is far superior. He's gonna keep moral law for us. And then in mercy and compassion, he's going to come and die on our behalf so that we can trust in him for salvation. This is the new way. This is the only way for sinners to be saved. So verse 6, he's teaching. And this is undoubtedly what he's showing. And there was a man, look at it, ready? Verse 6, and his right hand was withered. Now, if you look in Mark 3, 1 through 6, or Matthew 12, 9 through 13, it gives us the same account of this story. Don't look there now, right? But you can write it down, Mark 3, 1 through 6, Matthew 12, 9 through 13. So if we were in Mark, we'd only be in chapter 3 at this point, okay? Matthew would be in chapter 12, but the books are um, different in length. So, um, so don't get too encouraged, okay, when you, when you see where we're at. But listen, here's what he's doing. He's given the same account, but Luke is the only one who gives the detail that this is the man's right hand. And I love this. Why? Because Luke, right, the physician, gives us the details when it pertains to any medical issues. And this is how we know that this is a medical issue. The man's right hand is withered. Think about this. His hand likely suffered from atrophy of some sort, right, making it impossible to use his hand for many years, if not his whole life. And so listen, this word that's used for this atrophy is likened to a dry land, void of any water, shriveled, dead, dried fruit, without anything um, of substance to hold its, itself together, no, no muscle uh, and shriveled skin. This is this man, and he's in great need. He's in great need, and Jesus sees him. Listen, and verse 7, look at this. Instead of having any sort of compassion for this man, verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees, as all we've already described in detail in the previous weeks, they look and they watch on and all they want to do is watch closely to see what Jesus does. Why? They watch Jesus with a very specific reason and what's the reason? Look at it, verse seven, they're watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find reason. Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus. This is the beginning of the ministry. Jesus is probably a year in. He's got another two years. They're not going to succeed in killing him for about another two years, which tells us, of course, that this is a long time that they're going to be planning this. But they want to get rid of him. They're not watching to see his healing power on the Sabbath and so be amazed by it. They're 
watching to see what he's going to do in order to accuse him because they don't need him. They've already trusted in their religion for their salvation. They've got no need for him. They'd rather accuse him. So look at this. Listen, they're watching him. They want to get rid of him. Why? Because in their eyes, first of all, he's stealing their high position, their fame, and he's undoing, this is the main issue, that he's undoing everything that they've trusted in for salvation, their own religion, their own works. In their pride, they truly believe that their way is the only way. They're not watching him to be changed. They're not watching him to see his compassion for people. And they're not watching him with needy hearts themselves to say, I need a savior. They're not looking at him for that. They don't need a savior. They're trusting in their religion because they're not obviously aware of their sin and their need for a savior. That's what we've been talking about all along. So they don't look to him and say, man, if he can heal these people, maybe he can heal me too and I can be saved. Instead, they watch him in order to see what he's gonna do so they can accuse him. And so listen, they're watching him not to be changed. They're watching him not with needy hearts. They're not watching him in awareness that they've fallen short and they need his mercy and compassion too. They're watching him in pride and so to accuse him. Why? Because listen, he's a threat to their self-governing lives, their religion-based merit before God. And so listen, before we go any further, let me just tell you, this is so relevant for us. And this might be harsh, but listen close. I don't mean it harsh. I mean it in a loving way because I want to awaken you to something greater. Some of you come into church or look at Christians or look at Jesus and you watch not to see his compassion to save sinners. You're not even looking for it. You don't even look to him to say, man, maybe if he does this, he would do the same in my life but you come to see what's wrong with him in the scriptures and Christianity. That by your own standards, you can accuse him and get rid of the threat that he is to your self-governing life. I want to encourage you not to look at Jesus this way. Listen, don't look at Jesus this way. The Pharisees would do well to look at Jesus not with this attitude, but with awareness of their own sin their own need for a savior and cry out to Jesus that his salvation would apply to them. This is the same way we should look to him. Look upon him with watchfulness as you look to see him as the son of God who can save sinners. Not to accuse him of what he's doing wrong, but we see this attitude from the Pharisees. And listen, verse seven, the reason they were watching, look it down at it, so that they could accuse him, Right? They're not seeing this in light of what they need because listen, they couldn't, the reason why they could accuse him if it was possible in this moment was because healing was seen as what? What do you think? What? A work. On the Sabbath, healing was seen as a work. We see it clearly. John 5, 10, look at this. It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you you to take up your bed. This is what like after Jesus did a healing. Verse 16 of of John chapter five, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the what? Sabbath. So they are gonna accuse him because of his healing on the Sabbath. They're not watching him because they need a savior. You see how this ceremonial law is now superseding goodness and the work and the compassion and the mercy of the savior. And Jesus is trying to flip this thing on its head. Listen, don't try to trust in your ceremonial law. Trust in me. Don't trust in your works. Trust in me. And listen, Jesus has been saying this. God's been saying this for a very long time. If, I won't bring it up, but if, if you look at Isaiah chapter 1 or Isaiah chapter 58, you're going to see that God has been saying this for a long time. Your works and your sacrifices and you keeping the Sabbath means nothing because your hearts are off. Your traditions don't mean anything. Your hearts are off. And so listen, he's saying, if you would turn away from this, and turn to the blessings of the Messiah, you would be saved. And so the Pharisees, now they amended their law to say that if you could save someone from death, you could do work on the Sabbath, but you couldn't heal. This is what they were gonna accuse him with. Listen, I think it's ironic because Jesus' work that he was doing on the Sabbath would actually save and save lives, save souls for eternity, right? 
But these religious leaders, they don't know they're sick. They don't know that they need a savior. And so church, point number one, we see that the Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus. And I wonder if you can just relate at all to trusting in your religion, your ceremonial standards, make you in right standing with God, and I want to tell you Jesus came to get rid of that, so that you would just trust in him, in his way. Number one, the Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus. Number two, Jesus wanted to undermine the Pharisees, right? The second thing that we see here is that Jesus wanted to undermine the Pharisees. They want to get rid of him, and Jesus wants to undermine them. Who do you think is going to win this thing, right? Jesus wants to undermine them. Now, Jesus knows their thoughts, right? Verse eight, look at this. He knows their thoughts. And what does Jesus want to undermine? Jesus wants to undermine their trust and their religion. Why? Because a lot of people are watching. Many souls are at stake here, right? He wants to undermine trusting in religion for salvation and move into a trusting in his work, his mercy, his compassion for salvation. And so Jesus knows their thoughts, verse eight. He knows these thoughts. Of course, like this is one of the divine characteristics. Not the only time we see it. Look at Luke 5, 22 on the screen. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? So to everybody else, the Pharisees are sitting on and watching. But Jesus, he knows their thoughts and he knows their hearts. That's a good like quality to have, right? Right? So he's got that quality. He knows what's going on. And Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, verse 8, come here, stand, right? All were amazed because he probably spoke with uncommon authority, as we've seen in the scriptures. But undoubtedly, this is full of mercy and compassion and a desire to prove the Pharisees wrong, right? He wants to put them in their place. So the man rises, verse 8. Can you picture this? Listen, standing in front, Jesus and the man. Pharisees probably front row, not calling you guys Pharisees on the front row here, okay? But they're probably on the front row. Everybody else watching. And Jesus is about to completely once again undermine Judaism and put into practice the new way that that people would trust in him for salvation. Verse nine, this is what Jesus asks. He asks, this is the response to knowing what's in their heart. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Now this is genius, Because in Jesus' typical way, listen, he asks a question that they can't answer, right? Like, this is what Jesus is doing with this question. Like, you're wondering, why is he asking that? What does that mean? He's asking a question in response to the thoughts that they can't answer, okay? Let me explain this to you. He always asks questions that they can't answer, right? Because this is what he's trying to do, prove a point without really telling them it. He's just going to prick their souls. And so this is the question. They're frustrated by this question. Why? Because like they say to themselves, first of all, Jesus, this is not the relevant question. Why are you asking us, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? You should be asking a different question, Jesus. You should be asking, is it lawful to do anything on the Sabbath like heal? That would be the right question and we would immediately say no. But Jesus doesn't care about that question. He's not asking them, is it lawful for me to do anything? Because he didn't care about that question because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He didn't need to know if it was okay for him to do anything on the Sabbath. The ceremonial law now does not mean anything. And he also asks the question, is it right to do good or is it right to do harm? Why does he ask that question? Well, he asks it because there's no neutral, right? If I'm gonna do something, it's either gonna be good or it's gonna be evil. There is no neutral, right? This is showing them that, okay, everything that we believe is, is, doesn't make any sense. It's either bad or good. There is no neutral. So I'm asking you, is not is it right to do anything, but is it right to do good? What takes precedence, goodness or ceremonial law? That's what he's asking them. And they can't answer because if they say, yeah, it's okay to do good, then he says, okay, well, man, be healed. And they got no accusation. If they say evil, then they don't look very good, right? They look like lawbreakers, so they can't answer. And another aspect to this question, which you would have to read between the lines to see this, is you stand here and want to accuse me for healing while you sit there in your heart and watch me and wish to do me harm. So let's ask what's really lawful, to do good like I'm gonna do or to do harm? It's not lawful for me to heal, but it's okay for you to sit there and have evil in your heart towards me. He's exposing everything in the question. This is Jesus for you, right? They can't answer. Got you. And after he stands there and he looks them all in the eye, can you imagine, like, listen, all the Pharisees, 
There's, this signifies a, a pause here when he says he looked at all of them. Like, there's silence. You could probably hear a pin drop, right? Can you imagine Jesus just looking around and saying, like, what? What are you going to say? You know? Like, what are you going to do? Pay attention to what I'm saying. If you'd only see your need for me, I would save your soul. He's exposing his goodness, his mercy, his compassion has taken precedence over the law, right? Listen to this. He said to them, forget them. Forget this stuff. He answers his own question then by asking what's lawful to do. He doesn't even wait for their answer. They don't know how to answer. So he answers it for him. How does he answer it? He says, I'm gonna show you if it's lawful to do good. Come here, man, stretch out your hand and I'm gonna do it. To answer the question, it is okay. To do good, goodness is taking precedence now over the ceremonial law. Forget all this other stuff, right? So Jesus tells this man to stick out his hand. You see it in uh, verse 10, and Jesus healed his hand. And in this section, with this question and this healing, we find the main point of the whole passage. Jesus answers his own question by healing the man and saying, goodness, mercy, compassion has now taken precedence over ceremonial law. Human need has come into play, and God has sent me. My Father has sent me to save souls. Just like David, the human need took precedence over the ceremonial law, stating loud and clear, this is the way it's going to go. So listen, Jesus, once again, is undermining any works-based values, trusting in any religion for salvation because it holds no weight, and turning us to trust in the gospel. This gospel now supersedes any type of ceremonial law. Ceremonial law can't save you. And in our world, listen, your religion can't save you. Your good works can't save you. Your coming to church can't save you. Your being a good person can't save you. You having a good family, it can't save you. You making enough money, it can't save you. None of your merits that you can accumulate will save you. Wholly throwing yourself upon Jesus Christ, trusting only in him for salvation will save you. That's what he's showing This is the better way. Number one, the Pharisees wanted to get rid of Jesus. Number two, Jesus wanted to undermine the Pharisees. Number three, lastly, we're only gonna touch on it for a second, right? It is revealed that the Pharisees still see no need for a savior. At the end, what we see is that they don't see the need. Only a brief mention of this. Instead of seeing the truth, making the switch, understanding what Jesus is saying, Seeing that goodness is better, what do they do? They leave. Verse 11, they were full of fury and they discussed with one another. Mark 3, same account, says they went out immediately and discussed with the Herodians. How might they destroy Jesus? Instead of seeing that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, that he forgives sinners, instead of jumping for joy and receiving that mercy and compassion, instead of seeing their great need themselves, instead of wholly throwing themselves upon Jesus and depending on him, they say, we're gonna stick with our religion, we'll trust ourselves in our ways, we have no need for you, Jesus, like good day, right? See you later, and we're gonna eventually kill you, okay? And so listen, This makes no sense, church. This makes no sense, and yet we do it all the time. The encouragement to you, as I said in the beginning, my prayer, Christian already or seeking Jesus, is that you would turn away from your religion and you would trust fully in the mercy and the compassion of Jesus Christ. That you would cry out to him for salvation and that you would continually depend on him and his merit alone and not your own works. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, one of my fav- most favorite verses in all the Bible, says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. You know what the context of this is? Those of you who are seeking tirelessly to be good enough before God by your religious and ceremonial efforts, come to me. I'll give you rest. My salvation is free based upon what I have done in your stead on the cross. I'll give you rest from your strivings. That's what this says. And listen, as we close, in case you feel a little bit too similar to the Pharisees and you're saying, well, I wonder if I can still cry out to Jesus for mercy and compassion. I've trusted a little bit too much in my religion. Let me show you this hope. 
Acts 15, 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. Wait a second. Some what? Believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees? Some did turn. Some did believe. Some did have salvation. One of those Pharisees was pretty famous. You know his name is? He's a Pharisee. So I want to tell you, no matter where you're at, turn away from trusting in your works, trusting in your religion, and turn to the mercy and the compassion of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we come before you today. I pray for everyone in this room. I pray, God, that we would be a people who would leave here today who fully trust in the merit of you, Jesus. We would turn away from trusting in our religious, works-based self-righteousness in any sort of way. We're all on equal playing field, no matter our income level or our social status or how good we are morally. We are sinners in need of a savior. God, help us to see our need. Not to look at you, Jesus, with what's wrong with you or, or how uh, you inconvenience our lives, but help us to look at you with our own need and say, we need you, Jesus, in our lives. We need your compassion and mercy for us. Help the people in this room today to trust in you for the, for the forgiveness of their sins for salvation. And those who already know you to lean into you only when they're discouraged about their failures or wondering if you're still in their lives. Help them to look to you and the merit of your son as what makes us in right standing before you. If we would be people who are gospel-centered, we would change the world. I pray, God, that you'd help us to learn from this example from the Pharisees today and that we would be people who trust in the gospel. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.